David Katz, thank you so much for um, you know taking the time to do to chat just a little chat. So um, yeah, I I know you from the you know this dub me always um, dub session reggae dub sessions in Brixton, London. So, but before yeah. we get into that, just tell me something. I mean, well, obviously you're a white guy, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, with a name like Katz, that's a Jewish um, yeah. heritage, right? Yeah. So tell Correct. me. Yeah, I have a Jewish yeah, heritage. Yeah, indeed. Tell me about your your journey into reggae music. I mean, really. Yeah, so, you know, um, I always say that I feel fortunate to have been born and raised um in the time and place that that I was that I was raised mm. and one thing I would say as well is that I grew up in a house music ah. and different kinds of music <clears throat> so just for instance um and this is growing up in a small town north of San Francisco okay where I was born yeah I was born in San Francisco and you know just outside and um, so, like, my mother was really big on Western classical music and opera. And then my father was a huge jazz head. And he he told me about um, his impoverished beginnings in, in Brooklyn, in yeah. South Williamsburg, that one of his prized possessions when he was a teenager was a Billie Holiday 78. And so, you know, he just used to listen to the, the jazz station 24-7. He had um, Lead Belly 10-inch records, the, the loose singer, Lead yeah. Belly. Yes. And, um, and my mother had Calypso records, which I still have. Wow. And like, yeah, like Lord Invader. Yes. Yeah. And then, um, oh, and my father also you know i remember him bringing home a lot of beatles records right when they first came out like sergeant pepper's the lonely arts club band yeah. magical mystery tour let it be he brought home the doors first album right when it came out and santana's first album right wow. when it came out Wicked. so you know that was like the environment home and then also my mother started to usher at the local concert hall which was yeah. a beautiful design by frank lloyd wright with excellent oh, acoustics. Amazing. So yeah. I just went to see lots of concerts for free mm. through her. So a lot of Western classical music, but also East Indian music, because mm. a musician called Ali Akbar Khan came to our town and opened a music school. So these high caliber musicians would come from India and perform frequently. Yeah. So from... My early years, my preteens, yeah. you know, I saw a lot of that music. And my father also took me to see people like um, um, Dizzy Gillespie. And okay. I remember just, yeah, being blown away by that concert. And you've been so, in <laughs> Yes. And then, so here's the thing now. So the town I grew up in was called San Rafael, uh, north of San Francisco. And I was actually outside city limits. Yeah, in a kind of a strange environment, in a suburban environment that was the last turnoff before countryside. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a very in between space. But but uh, San Rafael only had one radio station, which was KTIM, and it was a very open radio station with free programming. And every 
Sunday night, they had a two hour reggae show called Midnight Dread, oh. presented by, uh, yeah, a man named Doug Went. And Doug was a frequent traveler to Jamaica, and he was a real ambassador for the music and the culture. Okay. If you go online and you Google yes. Doug Went Midnight Dread, there are some shows up there. So, you know, his shows, he was not just playing commercial reggae mm -hmm. as released by Island Records or a major yes. label. He went really deep into the music. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing a dub album, tracks from a dub album on his show, mm -hmm. a Studio One dub album called Jukes Incorporation. <laughs> And so, you know, here I am, like, coming into my teens, and I turn on my radio, and I hear some deep Nyabingi drumming with a little organ background, <laughs> and this whole of Mount Zion chant, and then a, a guy coming on top in heavy patois, eyes a scene, you know, like, very impenetrable <laughs> yeah, words, yeah. and stereophonic panning, like, nice. scene, 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 yes. bouncing across. So I was just like... What on earth is this? You know, <laughs> this music is breaking all the rules. Yes. He played he played a lot of black arc music on that show. I remember in particular the Revelation Time album that mm. Max Romeo released. And so it was um The Blood of the Prophet, a song that went into an extended dub mix. Mm. So, you know, these records had a huge effect on me. Yes. And then a transformative moment came in 1981. It was 81, I think, in July 1981. Jack Ruby Sound System, Jack Ruby High Power, came from Jamaica yeah. and performed in San Francisco, right on the same street where I was born, <laughs> just a few, few doors down yeah. from the hospital where I was born. And it was the 50,000 watts of dub power tour. And and you have to you have to appreciate. Yes. Um, you know the Jamaican diaspora, so I, I know you're aware, Dawn, like Miami, there's a huge true, there's a huge true. Jamaican community there. Mm. Brooklyn, parts of New York, there are a large Jamaican community there. Los Angeles has a smaller Jamaican community. Yes. Now the San Francisco Bay Area, there was a community in the city of Oakland, but it was very small and very insular. Mm. It's not like being in those parts of New York or being in London, right. where Jamaican exactly. culture is right. ever present, right? Huge. Yes. So when this when this tour was put on by Lister Hugh and Lowe, who used to work for Island Records and who had the Clappers label it, on the poster they had to print on the reverse what is a sound system. Oh, most, oh. Yeah, most of us have no idea. Knew, had no yes. Yeah, yeah. It was the fifty thousand watts of dub power tour. Yeah. It had a strange image on the front of a dread with a tam cocking a gun. <laughs> like one on it, you know, it's like, what is this all about? But on the back, it tried to explain what a sound system okay, is, well, some yeah. of the history, what, what's its function. So I went to this with a friend of mine from high school. Mm. And it just, it just blew my mind to smithereens. I just couldn't understand what I was experiencing. Wow. You know, these custom handmade wooden speaker boxes set mm. up triangular stacks yeah just filled the room with sound with this incredibly warm rich tone and then you had selector fat jaw and jack ruby himself <laughs> selected towards the end yeah and it was meant to be yellow man brigadier jerry and bobby culture but in the end it was bobby culture louis lefke and lee van cleef mm. and so i remember they were playing 
Burning Spear records that I knew from the radio and from mm. the film Rockers, but they sounded nothing like that. Yes. They were being torn apart and <laughs> bass dropping out, the bass boosting up, and yeah. then, you know, these toasters doing these extemporaneous rhymes, freestyling on the spot. And it was just like, oh, this is incredible. And you also were, you could- You were baptized then. <laughs> baptized yeah, completely, <laughs> completely. So it just, it was just like opening up a whole other world. Yeah. And I just wanted yeah. to find out as much about it as I could. And I started to read the few books that were there at the time. Okay. There was Timothy White's Catch a Fire and there was- yeah. um, there was a book called Reggae Bloodlines by Stephen Davis and the photographer Peter Simon. And then they did a follow-up called Reggae International. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so I just devoured those books. And then when I was, um, well, so I, when I was um, 17, I found out that I could take a test and get out of high school year early. Okay. So I did I did that. You could do that in those days, the California State Proficiency <laughs> Test. Never heard of it. I yet. had my I had my requirements out of the way for university. So I did yeah. that. My sister had been working at the local community college and I got a job there doing data entry and I was a fast typist. And I started to earn overtime to mm. work in the evenings and double time at weekends. Yeah. I saved up some money. I was living at home. I wasn't paying tax. And I went to England in, ah. um, in 1983 19, when yeah. I was, yes, I was 17. So, you know, I got to London and there was this huge vocal, visible and audible Jamaican community. Of course. Reggae all over the place. Yes. There were all kinds of, all kinds of uh, community stations as they yes. might call them pirate radio, but most notably DBC, the Dread Broadcasting Corporation, which mm -hmm. was started by Rita Marley's half-brother. Oh. Um, yeah, known as Dread Lepke. Lepke the Dread out of control. Yeah. And I remember seeing them support in a support slot for Aswad at a time when Aswad had uh, this extended Jamaican horn section yes. with Vin Gordon and Michael Bammy Rose and so, you know, it was just, that was like a whole nother level of experience for yes. me interacting yeah. with that community there. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, so you anyway, yeah, so in London, this is like the beginnings. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's the very beginnings. Yeah, and then, so tell me about Dub Me Always. So now you've started, okay. yeah, so you're yeah, now so, done. <clears throat> yeah, so done. just, yeah, just some slight bit of context. So after that trip, I went back. I started my universities at San Francisco State, my education there in English literature. I found a way to come back to the UK. At the end of that program, my final semester, I did it in London. And within about three, and by then I had been, I was writing for a music magazine in San Francisco called Wiring Department. Mm. Was later reborn as Murder Dog, a hardcore gangster rap magazine. But in that magazine, it was more post-punk and experimental music. But I started to write about reggae in that magazine. Right. Yeah. I wrote my first article about Lee Scratch Perry in that magazine mm. when he he released an album called Battle of Armageddon, Millionaire Liquidator. Yes. 
So when I came back to London at the end of 1986, I brought copies of the magazine with me. Mm. And I learned that Scratch was in London. Ah. So he was living in London at that time. Yes. So I made contact to try to conduct an interview for the magazine. Scratch took away copies of the article I'd written. We didn't quite get around to the interview that night because he was doing all his ritual stuff. Yeah. Long story short, he read the article. He understood that his message was reaching me. He took my <laughs> arrival as a sign that I was somehow supposed to be the one to help him ghostwrite his autobiography or something yes. like that. <laughs> Eventually, I did that, but yes. it took many years. So the book was first published in the year 2000. And obviously, being in Scratch's orbit mm. introduced me to a lot of musicians, like Family Man Barrett was one of the yeah. first that I interviewed yeah. in and Dr. Alamantardo was a neighbor. Mm. And then, you know, I got to know Mad Professor and he introduced me to you, Roy, yeah. and so oh. on and so forth. Wow. Yeah. Now, I I had been living for a long time up in Kensal Rise in northwest London. Yeah. And then and after uh, getting together with the woman who's now my wife. <laughs> yes. She was living over in East London. I lived there for a while, but then we moved south. We moved down to the Peckham Rye, East Dulwich area in the late 90s. And so the Ritzy Cinema is one of the oldest surviving mm. cinemas in the country. That's right. But I remember in the 80s, it had fallen into disrepair. It had a bad reputation as a place where seedy old men would hang out. And it was just one big screen in a dilapidated yeah. building. Yeah. Sometime there in the 90s or the early 2000s, I'm not sure, it was renovated and turned into a multiplex. Mm. And Chris Blackwell became a part owner of the cinema. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now, the cinema had this extra room upstairs, mm -hmm. and management never quite knew what to do with it. They had it as a restaurant initially called the Birdcage. Yes. It was a complete failure. It didn't work. <laughs> Then eventually, in the early 2000s, they turned it into a music space. But at that time, it was seated. It was a seated venue. Yes. And they they served pizzas so you could eat your pizza upstairs. Yes. But eventually, they started to have DJs up there. Mm. So I remember going there one night. Because it's right there in the heart and soul of Brixton. It's very much yes. a community space. Yes. Yeah. So I went there one night and I saw some woman spinning these records. I think she was even sat down, just like everybody else in the yeah. venue. She's kind of very relaxed. And I thought, hmm, I could do a reggae night here. <laughs> so I approached the music manager and I proposed yeah. doing a reggae night. And he said, yes. Uh, so and that was back in 2004. But in those days, the night was different to how it is now, because mm. like I say, it was a seated venue. It was yes. all seated. Yeah. You could picture in those days, you could smoke up there as well. Of course. It was a bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but so the manager said to me, he didn't want me just to play music. He wanted me to do a slideshow. Mm. So I would play these slides as a backdrop, slides that mm -hmm. I had taken in Jamaica. Okay. Of like, yeah, of like a lot of the sound systems there and just other things relating to the music. So I did it as a kind of a reggae and dub night where dub was always a featured part of it. Yes. 
but it was a Sunday night, so it was very relaxed with the slideshow, and then it was like mm-hmm. that. After a few years, the venue had a further renovation because in those days it had a spiral staircase that went up in the middle of the floor. Okay. So there wasn't it wasn't really conducive as a dance floor. Uh, yeah. That's partly why, yeah, why it was seated everywhere. Right. Ah, makes sense. They did a renovation, they they plugged up the hole in the floor. <laughs> they made a balcony at the back, they opened up balcony yes. doors all the way across. Yeah. And it freed up the dance floor as a dance space. Mm. So I started to, and then, but then they they moved me around a few times. I was on a Sunday. Originally, I was every other Wednesday. Yes, I think ah. alternating with a with an African DJ named Eric Saul. And then they put me on Sunday. Then they put me back to Wednesday. So it was kind of you know up up and down a little bit. And I had live bands for a while, which was a bit uh, hit and miss because yeah. the I I have always had a policy that the night should be free, mm. and that goes back to my childhood of seeing all that incredible music for free. Exactly. Yes. So I said I don't want entry. I don't want an entry fee, you know, for this mm. night. So, yeah. So, um, eventually we settled on how it is now. Second yeah. Wednesday of the month, the once month, a month, yeah. <laughs> with guest selectors, especially those of the veteran sound systems who yes. are either semi-retired or they're not featured so well, so often. So it's interesting for me, you know, I made a lot of connections in the 80s uh, yeah. through Scratch and in working on that book and so on. So one of the DJs I started to feature, uh, Clive Alec from Moambessa Sound System. Mm-hmm. When I met Clive, he was working for um, like a sub-label of CBS. And he'd been working with Terence Trent Darby and he engaged Scratch oh, to okay. do a remix. Yeah, Terence Trent Darby. And then I saw Clive, you know, for, for I knew Clive for many years and I never knew that he was this founding member of Moambessa because Moambessa were dormant. They were a legendary sound system from the 70s and they hadn't been mm-hmm. active yeah. for many years. And when he told me he, he was a co-founder, I was like, what? <laughs> you know. So I said, come and play my night. So he came with, um, he's like the mic man. Yes. Uh, his selector known as Wolfman. Two of them came and played my night. And the response was so strong that mm-hmm. Yeah. It brought them out of retirement. Now they play oh. out frequently again. Serious? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had a few of those, you yeah. know, it's like some of the old sound men who, for whatever reason, they weren't active or they yeah. didn't have the opportunity or they had families to raise or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And yeah. so make connection with them and give them a space and a platform. Yeah, cool. So, you know, so we, we've had some... Truly wonderful figures there. We've had yes. Festus from Sakoxen International. We had Sakoxen himself. Wow. Uh, we've had Dennis Bovell. Yes, we've of had, course. Yes. Yeah, we've had Gladiwax. We've had um, just recently we had King Tubby's UK, King Tubby's yeah. Hi-Fi from yeah. the UK, Cecil Rennie and uh, uh, his selector, Natty Harvey. And we've had Joey J, who had um, Great Tribulation Hi-Fi, who's the brother of Norman J, who 
found in Good Times as a wow. spinoff yeah. from from right. Great Tribulation. Yeah. So yeah, we've had all kinds of uh, legendary yes. figures. Oh, we've had some female female sound system selectors too, yes. like and Zinga sounds. There, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, but how did um, how did you come up with the name Dub Me Always? Oh well, see, so as you appreciate, you know, Dub is something that struck me way back, just when yes, I'm coming into my yeah. teens, yeah. right? And my thing is that part of the artistry of Jamaican music is the way that they have mixed mm. those extended yeah. 12 inches that mix seamlessly into a dub. And so yeah. the, the title comes from a great dub of Dennis Brown, Love Me Always. Oh, the the yeah. dub oh, yeah. of it was titled I Dub Me Always. One. It's on, <laughs> yeah, it's on one of the Joe Gibbs African dub chapter yeah. three, I think. Okay. Yeah, those. Cool. Yeah, so, and then for instance, the other, uh, a few months ago, I had Ross P from Entebbe Sound Systems, known mm. as the Rasta Chanters, and he came with some of his uh, mic men. We yeah. had a beautiful session there. What I really appreciated about the way he played was that he will never just play a vocal side. Mm. He will always, he'll play the vocal and then he'll flip it and play the dub. Play the dub, yeah. So the whole night he did that. And when yeah. you hear it that way, you appreciate the artistry in a different way. Of course. You know, the dub allows you to hear all those hidden contributions of the musicians. Yes. That you're yeah. not focusing on when you're listening to the lyrics. The vocals, true, true. You hear all the little, yeah. all the little nuances, all the little percussion yeah. and keyboard mm. melodies or the keyboard chords, the yeah. way the bass takes the melodic lead and you know, some little guitar accompaniment. You hear the you hear the same song with different ears. Yes, true thing. Yeah. yeah. So I always like to feature a lot of dub yeah. uh, on my nights. Yeah. You also play. I mean, you you have a collection. I've heard you play and you're damn good too. I mean <laughs> Yeah, well thanks. Yeah, I guess I started to play out in the early two thousands mm. and I played some events in France where we had King Jammy came yeah. to perform and we did mm. some, we did like a, a question and answer where mm -hmm. I got to put some questions to him and the public were there and they could put their questions to him. Yeah. And I played out as part of those events. And I remember a colleague, Major P, someone I got to know in South London, uh, who I bought records off of for a while. And I remember, mm -hmm bumping into him in a record shop one time in Peckham, Maestro Records in Peckham. Yeah. And he and a friend were were talking with each other and they were saying, you know, like, dude, if you've got the records and you're not playing out, then you're doing a disservice to the yes. public. You know, like, then what do you have the records for? You're not, I mean, you're not playing out and let the people exactly. enjoy the records that you have. Yeah. And I thought, hmm. You know, there's wisdom in that. Exactly. You have a collection yeah. of plays. Yeah. Yes. But so, you know, in the early days of the night, Dawn, it was just me. I would play yes, the whole night. Ah. Yeah. So so now, once we found the right formula, then, you know, when I had live bands, yeah, I would play when the band took a break. Yeah. I would play the warm-up. The band would do one set. I'd play in the middle, and the band would close yeah. the night. So once we set on the kind of formula where we found what was most popular, what was most successful, once we had a dance floor. Yes, yeah. Um, 
So it would be guest selectors along with me. Mm. And so then now it's like, I take the warm up slot. They're the featured artists for yeah. the night. Yeah. And then often I always give them the option if they want for the last half an hour or so, we can do tune for tune. Mm. So bring yeah. me back on the decks. I play one tune, they play one tune. Yeah. Wicked, yes. You know, also in the in the older days, before the pandemic, the night used to go a little later till midnight. Uh -huh. So that gave us more space to do that. Uh -huh. We might do two tunes each mm. for 20 minutes, then one one tune for half an hour or something like yeah. that. Okay, yeah, but times have changed. But so, um, and obviously this is all vinyl, no electronic. Yeah, exactly. 100% vinyl. Yeah, 100% vinyl. And it's music from the 60s and 70s, mostly. Primarily. Primarily. Um, Sometimes 60s, 80s. 70s, early 80s. 80s. We play yeah. we play new music too, but it's kind of got to be foundation roots. I mean, it depends who's yeah. playing. Yeah. Like, for instance, I had uh, <laughs> Leslie Lyrics from Ghetto Tone Hi-Fi who had some connections with Saxon Sons. So, yeah. you know, Les is like a dance hall guy. Okay. So so I think it's the only time at my night that you would hear Lady Saw. But, you know, <laughs> he brought the vinyl. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell people what to play. I can only suggest. Yeah. yeah. But what my public really likes is um, like 70s roots and a little bit of early 80s foundation dance hall. Right. Yeah. When we have people like Gladiwax play or Tighten Up Crew, they will always play um, a lot of ska and rock steady mm -hmm. and early reggae. Yes, yes. But yes. Yes. on the whole, what the night tends to focus on is yeah that that yes. peak roots yes. reggae period and and a little bit of foundation dancehall. Indeed, and it is about you know pleasing the public, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, you. And you still write for some of the a lot of um, music leading publications, right? Um, yes, I do. That's that's really what I do. You know, um, yes. playing out is just like a sideline to keep my hand in. <laughs> yes, yeah. And and because it's enjoyable, of course. You know? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. and I get a lot of positive feedback about the night. Mm. It's it's become kind of a connoisseur's night. Yes. Like if you're if you want to hear music that you're not going to hear at other people's nights or you know on main mainstream events then you come to dub me always true and you never know who's gonna turn up yeah you know like <laughs> bunny lee was a regular mm. when he was still yeah, alive you know he was a regular there we've had people turn up like cornell campbell johnny clark wow. Wow. 90 the observer you know a lot of guest artists might pass through soil bailey known as um mm. So well, the guitarist from Roots Radix, he used to come pretty frequently. Yes. Earl 16 yes. has often passed by. Dennis Bovell sometimes uh, comes to attend, yes. even if he's not playing. Right. It's, yes. So it's just that kind of night. And a lot of sound system people come. Yes, you know, indeed. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. maybe last question. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, you been around reggae music, dog music so long. I mean, and the industry, you know, has changed over the years. So, so I mean, what do you think is the, the 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 future of the genre? I mean, it's it's changing, you know, dance all you have all kinds of things, grunge, whatever, all mixed in together. <laughs> 
How it's do a good you question. The future of this genre. You know, it's something we've been discussing with artists here at Rototom Sunsplash. Yeah, um, just where yeah. do we think the music's heading? I think one thing about Jamaican popular music is you can never really predict where it's going to go. It's it's yeah. constantly reinventing itself. Mm. And I think these days it's kind of, it's not just one music, it's multiple strands at the same time. Mm. Uh, so it's a really good question about where is it going to head next? Yes. And yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I guess we'll just have to see, you know, where it yes. goes. But, but one thing's for sure is, you know, there's always going to be something interesting coming out of Jamaica and then mm. there will also be um different kinds of reggae happening in other parts of the world. Yes. Like Places you are, where like you're in Spain now, yeah. Yeah. Of... Like obviously in London and elsewhere in the UK, places with a large Jamaican diaspora, there's all kinds of reggae that came out of those places. Mm. But these days, there's also reggae made in places where there is no Jamaican diaspora. Indeed. Yes, like Japan, yeah. for, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Or parts, places here in Spain. You know, we did a session yesterday with Roberto Sanchez, who's from Santander in, um, in northwest Spain. And so, you know, he said it's just a music he was exposed to yes. as a young person, just like me. And it just yes, yes, yes. made this profound effect on him. And now he's creating his own reggae and he's doing yes. music with people like Linval Thompson and Willie Williams, who he's going to be performing right. with here today. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, it's just like a kind of a hybrid. Yes. And Willie, Willie was just kind of saying like, hey, you know, reggae is not about color. It's about kind of an attitude and an approach and a feeling and a liberty. Indeed. You know what I mean? So, Indeed, so yeah. it's like, yeah. yeah, all these things at once, I guess. Exactly. You know, let's see and where that's it goes. how you keep it alive, just letting it grow, right? Yeah. Wow. All right. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much, David. I mean, it's been hey, thanks, such a pleasure. And, um, you know, yeah, you have to just keep doing it. And I will keep coming to Dubya nice. as much as I can. <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> yeah, the other thing I might mention for your, re uh, your readers, actually, Dawn, is, um, uh -huh. you know, there's a revised and expanded edition of my book, Solid Foundation and Oral History of Reggae, that's supposed to come out in March 2024. Oh, okay. So you can be on the lookout for that, but maybe we can revisit that topic closer yes, to the we time. Yes, we will. We actually, we, we should. Yeah, absolutely. I'll remind you. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again for taking the time. And uh, yeah. Thank you. Enjoy. What a the sun splash. I wish I was there. But anyway, next time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah, so I look forward to seeing you. Um seeing you soon. Yeah, I'm I'm not around for the September session, which has oh, okay. uh, yeah, Lloyd Mass from Jamasagon and Rav Hi-Fi. But the October session is going to be a special one with Legs 11 sound system. Okay. Well, I'll make all sure. female sound make sure. system. Make sure. Yeah. That's in my diary. Yeah. All right. Okay. Then. Well, you take care. Okay. Enjoy. Okay. You too. Speak to you soon. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye.